Welcome to Tech Talks, your weekly technology podcast from the Harvey Nash Group, presented by myself, David Savage. On today's show, we're talking all about sustainability, how technology can help achieve sustainability goals of both individuals and organizations, and ask ourselves the question, how can we be a responsible global citizen? joined by Akish today in our new digs. The Harvey Nash Group has moved offices. We're, offices. we're now on London Wall. We were on Bishop's Gate, so we've got about five minutes along the road. Settling into the new the new place. Yeah, I mean, um, what did I say just before we recorded? I'm, I'm literally opening up any cupboard and door that I see in the office. Uh, I feel like a kid, really. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's nice, it's exciting. Listeners should know that we went up to the roof terrace at lunchtime. Uh, it's not really the day for it being the 4th of January, it's a bit cold and wet. But Akish, I did hear him say, it's like being Batman. Yeah, it is, because it's literally, if you imagine a scene from Batman, um, and he's looking out onto Gotham City, um, you kind of feel like that, like, you know, you, you feel... You think that London looks like Gotham? Well, no, no. You just kind of feel like, you kind of feel like you've got a bit of power, don't you? Um, it's overlooking like all the you know uh, landmarks like St Paul's and the Shard and the City of London. So, I think yeah. I said it to you up on the roof. It reminds me more of Bond at the end of Skyfall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something like that. I feel like we were quite underdressed, to be honest. Like, it, was, it was quite cinematic. Mm, you need to be wearing a suit up there or something tailored at least. Now look, you might be wondering what relevance that's got to do with the podcast, but one of the reasons that we've moved to a new office is we are, like many, looking at the footprint um, of our business, realising that we don't quite need the space that we had before and moving into an office with greener credentials. A lot of organisations are asking themselves how they can be responsible citizens, uh, and a large part of that has to do with sustainability. And interestingly, in mid-November, McLaren Racing appointed their first director of sustainability as they joined the uh, UN Race to Zero pledge that was made during COP26. Um, So McLaren talked about the fact that they're committed to joining the sports community as a responsible global citizen, combating climate change, and a framework that includes measuring, reducing, and reporting on the team's greenhouse gas emissions in line with the 1.5 degree commitment enshrined in the Paris Agreement and committing to being carbon net zero by 2040. So they've said that they're going to achieve that by 2030. They have appointed, as we said, a director of sustainability, Kim Wilson, who's joining on the 31st of January. Uh, She's coming from EDF Energy. So what we thought we'd do, because it's the first podcast of the year, is actually look back at several podcasts that we've recorded over the last year or so, or 18 months, talking all about this idea or this concept of being a responsible global citizen. Um, Akish, yep. what do you reckon makes a responsible global citizen? Um, do you know what? I, I think I, I wouldn't put it down to what are you doing initially? Because at the moment, it, it's it, it's quite hard to be, you know, and saying, oh, I'm very much, um, you know, kind of doing everything to make sure my carbon footprint is low and, and, you know, these sorts of things. Like we were talking earlier, you know, we both have cars and, you know, in hindsight, cars add to, you know, the CO2 footprint. We probably shouldn't be driving them, that sort of thing. But I think what it means to me is just someone who understands the wider world and their place in it. Awareness, I think, probably one word if you were to, yeah, if you were to sum it up, it would be awareness and making a conscious effort for when you can 
to do something which is a little bit more sustainable. Um, you know, that that's, that's what I was saying. So, like, actions um, that you could take. You could take certain, you know, options in terms of buying, you know, something that was a bit more sustainable mm-hmm. as compared to something... Even little things, like, I know this sounds so stupid now, but plastics, like, just reducing the amount of plastic that you may use, that still makes an impact. So this is a beautiful segue. I'm going to play you a very short clip where we talk to Tom Van Aken from Avantium, CEO of Avantium, where he talks about PEF, which is a new type of plastic that degrades 100% faster, uh, and they're hoping that microorganisms will eat that material. So we'll play that. We'll be back in two seconds. Well, the material that we're making, PEF, is a plastic that actually um, degrades 100 100 times faster than um, traditional plastic. So which means that in a few years' time, bacteria and microorganisms, they will basically um, eat that plastic and, uh, and make it go away. So um, that's a completely different material than what um, consumers are used to. But actually, it's one of my fears is that people will th- think that they can litter. Um, I really want them to return the bottle so we can use it for making another bottle and making another bottle. Um, so that is what we have to do really well is communicate that well to the consumer is that recycling is much more sustainable than throwing things into nature. So, um, I suppose the, uh, the thing that, that kind of makes me, first of all, the, the big question is why, why continue to make plastics as opposed to, you know, you got, you, you, you're, you're hearing now increasingly about supermarkets kind of no plastics and they're offering, Kind of, you either bring your own bags or there's paper bags or there's whatever else. Why why do we still need plastics? Why can't we switch over to to other forms of packaging and and you know cardboard or whatever and, and that be our solution? Yeah, I've I've heard this romantic um, story about a plastic free uh, economy a number of times. You know, I hear it over and over again. The issue, uh, David, is if you would do that, the, um, the 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 food waste would actually go up dramatically because. Most of the materials we're using to package, uh, you know, food and beverages are not there just from a marketing perspective, but they're most importantly there to actually protect the product and give it the shelf life that is required. You talked about the fact that cars, we shouldn't maybe have cars. Tom talks about the fact that it's a romantic notion to have a plastic-free world. He also talks about the fact that actually we need plastics because if we didn't have plastics and we just relied on paper, well, the shelf life of our food yeah. would be much shorter and there'd be a lot more waste. Sure. Uh, and I think that is that thing, isn't it? Like, we need technology to help us to continue the type of lives. The world is interconnected. We can't just turn the clock back on that mm. indefinitely. But we need to use technology to unlock ways of, of just making slightly better choices. So if we're going to create plastic, create plastic that can be um, eaten, yeah. for want of a better word, by microorganisms, yeah. or recycled more, more yeah. easily and yeah, reused. Yeah. And it, without sounding like a, a Charles Durbin kind of expert, I think it's evolution, right? And, and we need to kind of use that same principle and things that we are creating just move along with times. Um, I remember when I was young, it was all about, you know, fridge freezers and aerosol cans. That's what we used to learn about, right? And the ozone layer. Things have gone way beyond all of that now. Um, and maybe we should just be kind of concentrating on the smaller steps that we can take. You mentioned at the top of the show, we moved into offices, you know, that are kind of looking at the carbon footprint of, of 
you know, more kind of efficient, energy efficient, that sort of thing. So little steps like that, that even organisations do and what you can do, that'd be great, you know. Mm. Um, printers, for example, um, you know, I, I had to print something off this morning, but, you know, I was asked by a couple of people around me, like, do you actually need to print it off or are you just doing it? You know, and having these conversations, listening um, to, to things and, and listening to those interviews that we've got, it gives you a lot more information. Um, it's, it's interesting. When I got off the tube this morning, I got off at uh, Moorgate. Yeah. Did you get off at Moorgate? I or? did, yeah. yeah. Don't know whether you noticed, there were a lot of adverts for Olio. No, I didn't know. So they were on the on the way up on the tube, and the reason I noticed... I'd steamed up glasses because of my face mask. <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I could just about make the escalator, mate, to be honest. Well, look, Olio, Olio are a, a company that we had on the show a couple of times, actually, in the past, but certainly last year, Tessa Clark, they've raised... As their co-founder, they raised a huge amount of money and their advertising campaign, it's great to see that that's out there and hopefully kind of seeping through to people's consciousness. Mm-hmm. But in terms of making choice, I think it's really interesting to, to listen to what Tess has to say here. Uh, and again, we'll come back in a second. Food poverty is something that has existed and been prevalent in our society way before COVID. Um, and that was something I hold my hands up. I had no clue about that prior to founding Olio. But through founding Olio, I've, di- I've discovered that we have... million people in the UK living in food poverty. And it's very easy to sort of bandy numbers around, put that into context. That's pretty much equivalent to the population of London. Uh, And half of those people are living in severe food poverty, which means they don't know where the next meal is coming from. So we were aware of the issue of food poverty, but this then really got sort of kicked up a notch, as you say, when the schools were closed. And Um, I did not realize until the schools closed that 1.3 million school children relied upon their free school meals as a critical source of nutrition and energy and food. And um, through those schools closing, it then became very apparent those kids were no longer going to have access to that, that critical meal. And Cook for Kids was really born out of actually my kids saying to me, what, what are we going to do? You know, we haven't got school from Monday. What about the kids that rely, you know, have the free school meals. And I thought, wow, okay, pretty, pretty flawed by that question. That great question. And then I just knew that we had to do something. So she talks about food poverty. Mm. 8.4 million people in the UK are in, in food poverty. And half of those 8.4 million people don't know where the next meal is coming from. Mm. 1.3 million children rely on school meals as their only potential nutritional no nutrition sorry nutritious meal in yeah, a day yeah um and it, it just makes you consider that choice because it's not just about or how do we tackle food poverty on a big scale and 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 asking someone else to fix that problem you mm. talked about personal choice mm. olio allows you to look at the food that you've got in your fridge ask mm. yourself whether or not it's going to go to waste mm. and ask whether or not there's someone out there who maybe doesn't have access to that food that mm. could benefit from from having it and actually making a meal from it. Yeah, yeah. And do you know what? We're just coming out of the festive period, right? Um, I'm I'm from a household where food waste and stuff was, you know, very much kind of discouraged. In fact, to a point where my parents would actually get angry, like really angry and fed up um, if me or, you know, my kind of younger sister would waste any food or, you know, if, if we bought things. But over the festive period, what we saw was... There was food wastage, right? Like Christmas dinners, 
um, any other thing. There, there's, there was always, at least from what I remember, there was about one or two things in the fridge that were going off. And it was either like, right, we need to get rid of this. We need to eat this today or otherwise, you know, it's gonna go. and sometimes you just can't, right? And, and you have to throw stuff away, like um, vegetables that would just go soggy in like their packaging or these sorts of things. And it did make me think, bloody hell, we should be a bit more conscious of this. Because when you go to supermarkets and stuff, things look so appealing, they look so attractive, you just end up chucking them in your basket. Um, but I think it's just about being conscious and aware. And we're starting to see these signals suggesting there are different systems that are going to compete with that. For example, when you go to the supermarket in five years' time, alongside your salt, calories, fat, will there be a label that says, natural capital flow, human capital flow, social capital flow, and then economic flows alongside that? Or are we going to see the externalities, i.e. the cost of carbon or biodiversity loss or bio, uh, biosphere health or social impact factored into the price of goods in some way? And I think the, uh, the genuine progress in indicator is something that's quite, is looking at this quite heavily. Or are we going to view the economy in terms of planetary boundaries and social flaws, which is, you know, the idea around Donark economics that Kate Woolworth has, or are we going to include the voice of future generations in every decision that we make? Is there going to be someone who's sitting there in your boardroom saying, I represent the next generation, and I say that yeah. actually this is going to affect me in a certain way. So there, how that plays out is going to be, is a key uncertainty to us. Do you think if you went into a supermarket and you knew the carbon footprint, we were talking a couple of minutes ago about um, soggy vegetables, mm. of the carbon footprint of that, that you'd, you'd change the way you, you shop. Say you had the choice of, it's all it's winter, buy a Swede, mm. I'm cooking with a Swede, which I assume, mm. I, I might be wrong here, but I assume that Swedes grow in Britain in the winter, mm. or buy something more exotic that's had to be imported from halfway across the world. Yeah. And, they were the same like strawberries price. or something. Yeah, but it was yeah. something that maybe you would naturally just pick up without thinking. Mm. But the Swede had a carbon footprint, let's say one. Uh, yeah. I'm just arbitrary yeah. because yeah. I don't know how it actually gets measured. And and the strawberries had a carbon footprint of ten. Mm. Would that make you think twice? It would, yeah. But th this is where I think supermarkets should somehow maybe have them like separated. Do you know what I mean? Because I think then that would encourage the right consumer habits as well. Because yeah. I think right now where you go into like the fruit section, you've got you know, like peaches, nectarines, pineapples, papayas, they ain't getting grown at the moment, right? But then other things maybe, and I think you should have that um, kind of done. But then it's it's the whole tea off, right? Do you go to your local farm shop? I mean, I live in zone two, southeast London. Um, it, there is no local shops near me or anything that's like locally produced, um, not to my knowledge anyway, but... So I don't have access to it. However, if I did go into the Waitrose or M&S or Sainsbury's and there was something to say, look, this is less, you know, kind of the, the carbon footprint in order to produce this or get this here is is less than another item, I would likely want to go for the, the less one, unless I absolutely need the other thing. I'm, I'm going to be very interested to see what happens after the pandemic because before the pandemic, if you bought, let's say, fish from Norway, you and you were a supermarket, you actually had your people go and inspect the farm. 
So a lot of money was spent going to Africa, going to Norway, going to different places to inspect those faraway places which were supplying the food. So how do you now, after a year not done this, and how do you bring that back in? And from a cost perspective, is it really a necessary cost? So the supply chain, um, Genevieve talks there, she's um, from AgriLedger, about mislabeling. Oh, sorry, she goes on to talk about, sorry, in the interview that, that we recorded about mislabeling of fish. 40% of fish mm. in the world is mislabeled. And in the clip we just played, she talks about the fact that before the pandemic, lots of countries sent people all over the world to check the supply chain was correct. You were talking about local produce. I suppose mm. there's, a, there's a reaction there where it's like, if you're buying something local, you go to like a farm shop, and it's mm. you, you know where it's come from. You've got that security. You know that there's that smaller supply chain, that it's, it's mm. more sustainable. That feels like a good conscious mm. decision. But at the same time, that's not necessarily possible. Coffee doesn't get grown in our back gardens, yeah. in our backyards. And we want to make sure that that supply chain is properly administered. And it is a massive challenge coming out the back end of the pandemic about how we're going to do that and whether or not you can actually trust others to to look at the supply chain properly and not mislabel it not be in a situation where 40 percent of fish worldwide is mislabeled mm. makes you wonder what the hell's in a tuna sandwich when it says what well, it's a tuna sandwich off the time that is true that is true and also it just goes to show that you know fish for example you pay a bit of a premium for compared to other you know poultry or meat and, and that sort of thing so if it is mislabeled then are you just being paid more for it being fish food and if it's not exactly you know, fully built up of kind of what you're expecting in terms of the nutrition and the omega-3s and all that sort of stuff. So I think, yeah, I think um, the, 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 the supply chain of it needs to get looked at. But again, it's just about awareness, right? It's just about kind of knowing where to get things from, what to do. And, and also, I'll be honest, some people, and, and this is the, the thing that I have, is if you were to go to an independent fishmonger, those that are probably, you know, picking up fish at three, four o'clock in the morning, selling it by nine, ten o'clock, right? Or if you go to, what's that fish market in London called? Billingsgate. Yeah. If you were to go there, you're paying a bit of a premium sometimes for these places compared to if you just wanted to fillet a salmon, you'd go into your local <laughs> Tesco or Sainsbury's or whatever, pick up a packet for what, four pound, four fifty, and then, do you know what I mean? Mm. So it's like... Yeah, maybe there needs to be a bit of a a look at the, the kind of supply chain and also what it's costing the consumer. Yeah, and that's hard to know. Yeah. And funnily enough, earlier in the year, we spoke to Tread, who are using open banking to make sure that you know mm. when you're shopping, you, you get a, a report in an app. So yeah. hang on, we'll switch over to that. Come back in a second. At the moment, it would be um, sort of aiming to get people like spending like groceries, weekly shopping, etc. But we want to transition into... We are the card that people use. Yeah. Um, there is a whole inward discussion around curves and amazing things for how to get people through spending through a curve card, but not necessarily having a curve account. So it's where you link your existing card to. Yeah, I know we've had Cheshire on the podcast. Uh, yeah, and they're, and they're doing some like, yeah. they're doing some awesome things like, and, and there are definitely lessons for us to be learned because the thing that we do at the moment is we'd be really naive to think that everyone's going to spend every penny on our tread card. Yeah. And so to give people like a full view of their carbon footprint, we let them connect it via open banking as well. And so that, that, that if, 
because people spend on their monza like petty not petty cash but like their daily spending rather than like rent mortgages yes. loans etc so we're really conscious of that so what i really like about this is that the tread are aware that they've got this card that when you spend tells you the carbon footprint tells you how much some of these products are costing which is the thing that we kind of have returned to a couple of times but they're yeah. also aware that you don't necessarily um you're not going to use a tread card over your Monzo card, over your Barclays card. Like we've all got different cards yeah. in our pocket and they cite how Curve have used technology really well alongside other products through open banking. Mm. Um, and I think, I think that's, that's a really sensible application of technology, using open banking to pull that data together, to give you a holistic view of when you're spending money, what it's costing. So, so making that consumer choice more yeah. visible wherever you're spending your money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's showing you straight away, right? Like, yeah. I, I tend to do, well, check my bank every, every week, maybe once a week, maybe sometimes every few days, um, especially at the start of the month, because uh, you've got all kinds of payments and stuff leaving. So we always want to be kind of, you know, just making sure that everything's kind of how it should be. But I think if, if I had something like that, it would probably show me, like, oh, shit, okay, I've spent X amount of money here. And that's not really carbon efficient. So maybe I should be careful with my choices. In, in the same way that maybe you wear a fitness tracker and you do so many steps in a day. Yeah. If you go, shit, I only did 8,000 steps. Mm. I should have done 10,000 steps. If you get a report yeah. and it goes, last month, your carbon footprint was 22% higher than it normally is. Yeah. So you'd be yeah. like, hang on, what choices did I make? That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's maybe not, it's those prompts, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's that fitness thing as well. And, and there's another, um, there's like an app. Am I allowed to say app names? Yeah. yeah, why not? So like my fitness pal. Yeah. When you enter like your food and stuff on your calorie counting, sometimes you don't realise like how many calories are in a banana or like, I don't know, some sort of porridge. I probably won't worry about the banana. No, so. but like, you know, if, <laughs> if you're having like a specific thing from prep, let's say for yeah, breakfast. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and it looks quite nutritious. Oh, like, they can tell you that it's healthy. And yeah, exactly. It's exactly. like muesli. Yeah, exactly. You think muesli's healthy, it's packed full of sugar. Yeah, and then you put it into the... The, the app and then it tells you it's got like seven eight hundred calories you think what yeah. i thought it was meant to be healthy right? right so in the same way that triggers something off and the next time you make an educated choice you go actually i'm not going for that one i'll be going for something else right? yeah and it allows you to do a bit of research i think it's a great idea yeah right uh, towards the beginning of the pandemic we had hilo on the podcast i think it's a good moment to uh for everyone listening, Akisha's doing the high-low celebration that you might have seen should Patrick Bamford have scored recently. Which way is it? I don't know if it's that way or that way. This is great radio slash podcast. <laughs> they, they, um, they, can't, they can't even see me. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll play this clip because I think I think this this neatly kind of ties into what we're talking about here. These brands are, are phenomenal, but when you get to that type of scale, how do you achieve those interpersonal relationships with the people that you're working with? How do you really share that message and make the athletes an extension of you when you're when you're that big and, and those businesses are all phenomenal um in what they do on, on certain issues but in particular on on planet and uh, you know and climate um, something that I, I i really care about and cared about as an athlete i didn't felt that being one of these athletes for these brands i was essentially an extension of that of their message um or a message that resonated with me will talks about the fact that he was an ex pro athlete and in the interview, I mean, we've just played a short clip. In the interview, he expands it a little bit. He's talking about kind of like, you know, you get the choice of like Nike, Adidas, whatever else. Not to, I'm not having a go at those brands, but there's a limited choice for, for an athlete if you care about something. Those brands, you want there to be an emotional resonance. But he wanted to find a, a, a clothing 
sports brand that he felt reflected his values, mm. there were there wasn't that choice available to him. Mm. So Hilo was his answer. Uh, a sports brand trainers that are actually carbon negative, yeah, rather than just carbon neutral. Mm. And you know we're talking about making informed consumer choices. That that brand resonance and identifying really matters. I yeah, think, to increasingly that matters to people. It, it does, and and it's becoming more and more prevalent. I think it was only a few weeks ago I was talking about going on a, a on on a Nike actually, and there was a tab which said like you know sustainable materials or something like that and it was all their kind of products that were made from you know either kind of recycled um kind of plastics or recycled kind of materials and it was you know the the supply chain was being looked at and it was all kind of ocean saving and these sorts of things but then that's fine but nike as a huge global you know kind of organization I mean, I don't know what their carbon footprint is, but I don't think it's anywhere near what Hilo's is. Um, and they're definitely not carbon negative. So, when yeah, you so, have, so nice will be a lot bigger. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, but then when you have someone like Hilo, who, you know, maybe their product offering isn't as vast as Nike. Um, no, it hasn't got the scale. Ex exactly. But what you do know is each item that you buy has been looked at, it's been checked, yeah. and it is carbon um you know, kind of negative. If you were to use your trade card, you'd probably find that the, the supply chain and everything else behind exactly. it has a much smaller footprint. Exactly. So then you as a consumer, you'd feel quite good and say, yeah. actually, I've been sustainable here as compared to going out and buying a pair of other. Yeah. Know, I mean, look, trainers. if I had the choice between one pair of trainers of one of the big brands and it cost me 80 quid versus a pair of high lows that were like 100, 110, I think they're about 110, maybe 100. Mm. Would I spend 20, 30 pounds more on a brand that I felt was doing good for the planet. Mm. Yes. In fact, funnily enough, over Christmas, I got a new pair of Sam Smiths. This is Adidas, obviously. Yep. Um, and they're made from recycled plastic and they're vegan. Mm. And that felt good that yeah. it wasn't just adding to waste. No, fair enough. Fair you know? Um, but also, I, th I think I think the, the more sustainable products, I think the price point of them is a premium. I mean, we're quite lucky. We've got an element of disposable income. Yeah. We're in kind of good jobs. Yeah. We get paid pretty well. So we are at a privileged position to do that. There are loads and millions of people in the UK alone that don't have access to those sorts of funds. So but I then isn't it on us who've got the money in our pockets who can afford to make those choices to make those yeah, choices? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if we didn't care and then we carried on buying yeah, yeah, yeah. products that add to the issue, yeah. Yeah. that's, it's almost like doubly yeah, irresponsible. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. if we're going to be global, social, like, responsible global citizens yeah. I think it's on us who have the capability to make those decisions yeah. to make the right decision yeah agree, agree because yeah you're right some people don't can't afford that luxury mm. that decision mm. exactly and, and I think the ones who can should be having a look at their practice we started with F1 we're going to finish with F1 However, as an organization, and for me personally, you know, we, we care about getting young women into engineering and, and giving them role models and showing them that, that they can be the engineer in the garage, they can be sitting on the pit wall, they can be the person who uh, is working in the tunnel, you know, whatever that role is, if, if that's what they're passionate about. And in fact, we take about a thousand young people through our, our organization every year, not this year <laughs> because, of, uh, because of the pandemic, but usually they'll come through, some will have a day with us, some will spend a week or or, or the whole of their summer holiday, um, and they'll they'll have they'll have a taste of 
all the different departments. You know, they can they can go and work in the tunnel. They can go and work in the composites department. You know, making carbon fiber. My my daughter did this a, a few years ago when she was at school, and she she did the tunnel. She she made some things in, out of out of carbon fiber. I remember driving her home one day with a big plaster on her hand because she'd cut her fingers. She had a great <laughs> week, but the thing that she loved the most actually was the day she spent in procurement. And, and so I'd asked her on the Friday, what was your best day? And I was surprised by that because I, you know, she was into engineering. I thought she was going to say the tunnel or, and she said, I, I, she loved being in procurement because that day she had bought all the carbon fiber that was going to be used on the car in the Canadian Grand Prix that year. And she said, when I watch the Canadian Grand Prix with you, I'm going to know that I bought the carbon fiber on the car. And, and that opened my eyes again to the fact that it's not just those, what are seen as more glamorous jobs as an engineer. There are roles for everyone in formula one you know to to build design test and go racing with a formula one car so there that's uh, that's williams f1 cio graham hackland talking about his daughter's experience when she did a bit of uh, work there they have thousands of people through their factory doors every year giving them a glimpse about what working in f1 could be like and in the clip she very clearly articulates that she loved working in procurement because she bought the carbon fiber that was on the cars at the Canadian Grand Prix and she could see the effect of the work that she was doing. And I think that mattered, like to the next generation, seeing the impact of the work that they do matters. Yeah. And therefore, if you are a company that has an obvious negative impact on the world and on society and on the planet, that's a really dangerous position to be. Yeah, yeah. Because I think gone are the days where you, as a youngster or a millennial, whatever, you're you're just happy with the job and being a bum on the seat and you don't really care as long as you get paid at the end of the, the month. Yeah. I think now it's more people want to know about your values. They want to know about your, you know, mission statements. There's more and more around, well, what do you believe in? What are your ethics, right? Um, and with having something like that, which is visible and you're able to see it, more and more organisations will be flooded with, younger people or those at the start of their career to want to work for them as compared to i mean when i was younger and i was a grad you always just wanted to work for the big four and wanted to work in a big shiny building in the city of london right um and i think it's changed a lot since then yeah Um, and i think it goes it goes deep like people i think with social media and with yeah social media can be a negative echo chamber 100%, 100%, but it can also broadcast views and make you aware of stuff that I think otherwise you wouldn't be necessarily that that aware of. And, and a really good example of that, look, I'm, I'm from Newcastle, I'm a Newcastle United fan. Am I still going to support Newcastle despite them being bought by the Saudi government? Yes, because that's a really difficult emotional connection to turn off. Am I going to buy a Newcastle United shirt whilst the Saudi government owns Newcastle United? No. Mm. I, I can make that choice more easily. Sure. I, can, I can buy retro kits, I can go... Spend spend money finding something that was that was made in the eighties yeah. or nineties, and it might cost a fair bit, but I don't mind doing that. Yeah. I, I can again make that choice. Yeah. I don't have to buy the latest kit from the club. And it, all right, it's not sustainable, but again, it is about human rights, I suppose, and it's about being a, a, a ethics, right? Yeah, yeah, a, a global yeah. responsible citizen. Um, and I think that whole that whole ethos is tied together between environmentalism, between sustainability, between compassion, openness, diversity, inclusion we're in this position where we can begin to go, hang on, I know a bit more about this than I would have done 20 years ago. It's not just about working for the big four. It's about working for or, or buying from brands that I agree with even yeah. more than just care about. 100%. And I think as long as we do that, that will allow us to have a, a much better hold on our 
I guess, mental state and, and also our kind of knock-on effects and allow us to become a better global citizen. Yeah. Well, look, that's, that's the first podcast for the year. We'll be back next week with something approaching a regular show. Akish, thanks for your time. No problem. Let you get back to the, to the new desk. Thank you. And Enjoy. Uh, everyone else, have a lovely week.